0: Ehari Akane today on NewsHub Nation. Banished from the bubble, we to Emma Cropper in Sydney. Embattled Police Minister Porto Williams defends her record. And digital editor Finn Hogan on who's up, who's down, and who's spending in politics online. Teletato Katoa, I'm Simon Shepherd, and welcome to news Hub Nation. Calling a pito pito corero, itifari paramata in political news this week. New Zealand joined allies in a stinging rebuke of China accusing our largest trading partner of malicious cyber activity. The Chinese embassy called it a smear and urged New Zealand to abandon the Cold War mentality. The travel bubble with Australia has been paused for at least eight weeks following the outbreak in New South Wales. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has also apologised for the country's slow vaccine rollout. New Zealand is right down with Australia on most vaccination measures. And Samoa's Court of Appeal ruled on Friday that Fiame Nāme Mata'afa is legally Samoa's first female Prime Minister. The decision ended a three-month political stalemate and brought the 22-year leadership of former Prime Minister Tuila Epa Saleli Malela Ngoi to a close. Well, the Prime Minister has stopped the travel bubble with Australia for the next two months. Ashley Bloomfield says the New South Wales COVID outbreak is clearly not under control and the state itself is calling the Delta outbreak a national emergency. Joining me now from Sydney is our Australia correspondent, Emma Cropper. Good morning, Emma. Um, Did everybody just see this coming? They were expecting it?
1: Good morning, Simon. Well, it certainly didn't come as a surprise, I think, once we heard the entire bubble with all of Australia was closing. It did make sense in the past few weeks. Uh, we've seen it shutting and opening with all these different states uh, as the threat of, of COVID 19 uh, emerged in all these different places. And at the heart of all those closures are Kiwis who have been stuck here in Australia and they've had to fork out thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, their plans have been changed. Some people haven't been able to get home uh, for weeks. Some of them are now going through the MIQ system. Uh, so it was becoming very difficult for anyone to cross the t- Tasman, no trip was safe. Uh, so I think to put that blanket ban in place on travel, uh, it'll make it a lot easier. The message will be clear it is too safe, unsafe to leave New Zealand at the moment.
0: Sure, but do those Kiwis now have certainty they're trapped. Um, so how are they receiving that news?
1: Yeah, I think uh, stressed is probably the word I'm hearing the most from all the Kiwis here. They've now got seven days basically to flee Australia. They need to be out of here uh, by midnight Friday. Uh, the airlines are putting on extra flights to help them get home, but uh, it, it is difficult. It's going to be very stressful. They need to get pre departure tests, it's going to be expensive. Uh, I think they receive, uh, qu- they get quite nervous about the messaging that comes from people in New Zealand that was flyer beware. But bear in mind, a lot of people at this stage of the Trans Tasman bubble are crossing the the ditch because uh, not so much to go on holiday but because uh, they need to attend funerals they need to reunite with family for personal reasons uh, they're trying to set up a life here uh, and reconnect with family and start jobs so they're already in these quite stressful situations over here which are now I guess made worse by the fact that they now need to get back to New Zealand and they can't cross the ditch freely like they could.
0: I just wonder what role has the low vaccine rates of played in Australia and played in the New South Wales outbreak?
1: It has been interesting to watch because this highly contagious Delta strain, Simon, has really changed the game here and you've seen in the UK all those stadiums full of people going to Wimbledon and uh, to the football matches, uh, while those case numbers are so high there but they have quite a high vaccination rate. We are here in New South Wales just around 12% of the population is vaccinated so what we're seeing is sort of an experiment of what happens when this highly contagious variant uh, collides with a low vaccination rate. Uh, and the outbreak, it is unstoppable. It is outpacing uh, what would uh, contact tracing efforts, which usually you would rely so quickly on, but it is so highly contagious. People are catching it just walking past each other in malls. uh, At the MCG in Victoria, people weren't even sitting by each other. They didn't know each other. uh, And the airborne transmission of this virus has been passed from one person to another. If that was to happen in New Zealand, uh, you'd be looking at a very strict lockdown because of just how contagious this is And going hard and going early really is what you need to do when it gets to this virus. So that'll be why New Zealand has put up its borders. Uh, You do not want the Delta variant in your community because once it's there, like we're seeing in Australia, it is so hard to get out.
0: Uh, Emma Cropper, some lessons there for us. Thank you very much for your time, Australia correspondent Emma Cropper there. Well, has our government gone too far or not far enough in shutting the border for eight weeks? And do we just keep doing this? every time there's an outbreak. Professor Des Gorman from Auckland University School of Medicine joins me now. Kia ora, thank you for your time yeah, this cool, morning. i oh, really well. How are you? Good. Good. Yeah, well, so, let's ask the question, is an eight-week shutdown with Australia warranted?
2: Look, it's understandable because we're not vaccinated, and so, as a result, we're particularly vulnerable. We've struggled throughout to get contact tracing to the level that we need it to be. Uh, we tend to have surges of interest in being tested, and then they die away. So. Confronted with our lack of vaccination, then an eight-week lockdown is probably the only response that was available to the government.
0: But there is some concern, or maybe some surprise here, that for the next week, Kiwis that are in Australia can come home from six states and territories, not New South Wales, but other states and territories, without even self-isolating.
2: Is that a risk? Yeah, it is, and it's, it's inconsistent. And one of the problems we've had throughout the management of this pandemic has been behaviour in terms of responses which have been up and down in terms of acceptable risk. Now, I could understand the next week allowing people who have been vaccinated to come home if they've had a negative pre-departure test, but this next week, come home now, is really taking a punt. It's taking a punt. But is it...
0: Are they saying that and not allowing, and saying you don't have to self-isolate, just
2: purely because we just don't have the MIQ facilities? In part, but also I think it's trying to manage the optics. One of the problems <laughs> with uh, a politicisation of any health response is that it's not it's hard enough managing the health risk and the economic risk, but when you have electoral risk as well, it's very, very difficult. And we've seen politicians all around the world struggle to get that balance right. So it's a matter of what's the right thing to do versus what's the thing the public would like to see me doing or which they're most comfortable with me doing.
0: Well, that seems to be playing out in Australia at the moment because we've had Scott Morrison apologising this week Mm -hmm. for Australia's slow vaccine rollout. New Zealand's measurements are basically Mm. the same, aren't they? Yeah, or even slightly worse. Even slightly worse. So should
2: Jacinda Ardern be doing the same thing? I'm not interested in hearing the Prime Minister apologise for it. What I want to hear is a plan about how we go from isolation to integration. I'm not really interested in saying, oh, I'm so sorry for how slowly it's going. We all know that. Hmm. But tell us how it's going to be accelerated. Tell us how we go from this hermit colony to being part of the world again. Let, let, let's hear what the integration sounds like. OK, well,
0: we've got an experiment happening right now, in two places right now yeah. around the world. First of all, Britain um, has yeah. is, is gone from the hermit colony now to just Freedom Day. How yeah. do you think that's going?
2: Look, and I mean, they've got high levels of vaccination. Yeah, well, two thirds. Two thirds. And uh, uh, and two thirds of most of that's AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca. So, look, I think what's happened there is you get because you uh, have a growing expectation amongst the public of b- being allowed out one day. You get to a certain level of vaccination, and suddenly the desire to be let loose just becomes overwhelming, and you go from nothing to everything. Uh, I think it's early, I think it's precipitous, I think it's probably dangerous, but I understand why it became a political necessity. And the the issue for us is how do we step-change ourselves so we don't end up in that same point where, later this year, when two-thirds of us are vaccinated, the government doesn't come under huge pressure to just open the gates. In the same way you mentioned about allowing people in for the next seven days, that's a pragmatic Political response, not a health response. Are you
0: response? concerned that you know at the end of this year we're all just going to we want to head off into the world and
2: let the world in? Absolutely. I think there's going to come a point where that desire to go back to life as normal becomes so overwhelming that it'll be almost unmanageable, and we're seeing that in Sydney now, Simon. If you look at, you know, the premier gets up, says there's 100 new cases, of which 40 to 50 were wandering around the community. Yeah. So clearly, when she said go home, stay home, a lot of Australians said no, thank you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, you. You say how do we nuance this? How do you manage it?
2: Well, I think there are a number of things we need to do. The first thing is we need to understand what liberty vaccination brings and what we allow vaccinated people to do because of the effect they're vaccinated. So you're saying people who are vaccinated have more freedom? Absolutely. Because if you think you mean people who are vaccinated are less likely to get the disease. If they get it, they're less likely to be sick, they're less likely to transmit it, and they're less likely to mutate it. But I think we also have got to the point, and this is true for most uh, countries around the world where we need to start shifting the way we govern and manage the pandemic. Uh, If you think about the way in which we govern ACC, the Superfund, it's at arm's length from politics. It's an expert governance group. The government makes it clear to that group what its expectations are, but then gets out of the way of people who actually are expert so at you want, to,
0: you want to take the politics out of public health management, basically? Absolutely. Yeah, OK.
2: But in, in,
0: in, in insisting on that people who are vaccinated have more freedoms, are you creating two classes of
2: citizen here? Yeah, we are. There are yeah. two classes of citizen. And there's of, no apologies for that? No, you're vaccinated and you're unvaccinated. I mean, it's just a simple biological reality. Right. One's risks here, one's risk here. That's just simple. That's simple biology. And,
0: and, and the politicians are going to have to wear the political um, pushback on that,
2: aren't they? Well, well yeah. they are, because they're going to have to do it at some stage at some stage they're going to have to deal with an expectant community saying, give us back our freedoms, we've done our bit, two-thirds of us are vaccinated, we're heading off into the wild blue yonder.
0: So, until you get an
2: acceptance that, you know, you
0: have freedom if you're vaccinated and not if you aren't, we've got not only Britain doing an experiment at the moment, but we've got the the Olympics carrying on at the moment, and that's all of the world coming together with different COVID policies. Is that going to work?
2: Well, you'd have to guess that there's going to be outbreaks, there's going to be little mini-crises, there'll be some events, which, particularly team sports, which will default. Uh, I think it's going to be... It's a fascinating natural experiment, but I think it's got risks written all over it. OK.
0: Professor Des Gorman, thank you very much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Well, if you've got news uh, or a news tip, get in touch. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or you can email us at nation at tv3.co.nz. Joining us online in our Twitter panel this morning is comedian Ed Armon and political commentator Bevan Shuang. If I can, a eh, we dissect the week's political news with our panel but First Minister, Police Minister Porto Williams joins us live. and all. gangs guns, government funds and pay freezes, it's been a week of turf war in the police portfolio.
3: A South Auckland community is shaken after a shooting took place on a usually peaceful street
0: overnight.
4: And one person died on the front lawn. Government, come on board, please. We need to talk. A police officer is recovering in hospital after being shot during a routine vehicle stop in Hamilton. A single shot hit the officer in the arm and shoulder.
0: Obviously, the situation could have been significantly more serious.
3: The reality is a risky environment we police in.
2: 1,500 officers assaulted last year.
5: 350 injured, that's nearly one a day injured.
3: A wanted man was shot and
2: seriously injured.
5: Shocking events of this morning are still unravelling for those involved. To find yourself sitting in your car next thing you know, uh,
6: you've got a firearm being held to your head. Two firearm incidents in a month.
5: Armed police cordoning off Buck Road in West Auckland. Two shots were allegedly fired in the area late last night. I feel like it's normal. The renewed police presence today, not making locals feel any safer.
0: So increasing violence, a pay freeze, and they seem to be almost at the back of the queue for vaccinations. One frontline officer even told News South Nation he thinks the police minister is anti-police. Surely not. Minister for Police, Porter Williams, joins us live in the studio. Tena. Tenakwe, thanks for your time this Good morning. morning I mean, yeah, that's that's a flippant remark, but you know, surely you're not anti police, being police. Oh,
7: definitely minister. not. It's mm. an absolute privilege to be the Minister of Police.
0: Okay, yeah. But the situation is tense at the moment, isn't it? Like, pay negotiations as of Friday have just broken down. Police are talking openly about protest action. What hope can you offer them for some kind of resolution?
7: Uh, While I'm not involved directly in the pay negotiations, and Mm. it's probably best that I don't do that, but I do want to say uh, that I absolutely value the work that the police do. Um, It's my job to um, make sure that they get the resources that they need to do the work that they need to do. And let's be really clear about this. They go out there, put themselves on the front line to keep us safe. So right. it's and my so job to make sure that they get home to their families. That is your job. OK, day.
0: great. But the union's saying that the, the gap between the sides is tens of millions and is implying that the government is unbending.
7: Uh, uh, look, I can't comment on that. Okay. The negotiations right, uh, but they live are live s- and active at the sure. moment. OK,
0: yep. but uh, this could be quite big because they're talking about protest. I mean, when was the last time the police actually protested? I mean, are you aware of that? Never.
7: Uh, well, I, I'm not aware of it. But yeah. as I say, those those negotiations continue. It's not in, in the best interests of those negotiations oh. that I st- step in and make any comment about that.
0: OK, well, let's move on then. Let's deal with what the Police Association says about the uh, $2.75 million grant to Kahukura, the meth addiction programme, which is partly run by Mongrel Mob Life member Harry Tam. Did you... Uh, lobby for or against that? Did it come across your desk and did you lobby for or against it?
7: I want to be clear about that too, Simon. That that programme is one that works in terms of dealing with meth addiction. So how do you uh, know I'm, it works? I'm not, I'm, because the evaluation uh, that was done shows that it, that it does. And, wh- and there was 100% compliance with uh, drug use post post that. So, so OK, and, let's just pick up on that. 100% sure.
0: compliance post the programme. So th- yep. it's a 10-week programme, there were yep. 10 people going so, through it. Yep. And, so yep. the
7: Ministry of Health did testing on on those folk that went through it, and they were clean. So when, when did they do? That? Is
0: that I mean, are we talking like a week after the after the program, or we're we talking months after the program? How do we know that they were they don't? Relapse? An evaluation
7: is an evaluation, and if the the evaluators are telling us that post that program that they have people who are. Uh, clear of meth then mm. that signals that there is a that that program was successful doesn't
0: it well it depends when the evaluation was done I know we're nitpicking at the moment but if it was Absolutely. done if it's done a week after I mean so what I mean if it's done several months after that points to success
7: the program itself is funded because it worked and that's the point that I want to get across
0: right okay so you say that the program successful so you are for it
7: Well, if it works, uh, meth is a huge problem in our community. And it's a huge problem for police because meth is peddled by gangs. And gangs, and you know, meth harms our community. And we we
0: agree on all of those things, but I mean, uh, uh, you're not aware of the detail to prove that it works, except that you've been told by a value that's been the ministry of health
7: is the lead agency. I think the ministry of health knows about testing for meth. (laughs) Okay,
0: all right. Let's talk about um, this footage that national released this week. It is edited, and this is a political game, but it shows Harry Tam at a Mungroa Hui last year. Let's just have. Look.
3: and I guess most of you will realize that Harry Cabb is a serious f- mongrel. For me, it's been 47 years that I've been in the mob. But well, we know that come September this year, there's going to be this thing called the general election, and we all know the leader of the National Party is ganging up on us. We're the mighty f- mongrel mob. We don't take
8: any f- from these, f-. why should we take it from them?
3: That's the way I see it,
8: right. See you go,
0: the mob yeah. <laughs> All right, so Zighall to the mongrel mob. The Police Association says the optics of that are terrible. Do you agree? You've got Harry Tam, who is embedded with the mongrel mob, a lifelong member, uh, and he's being given partially... You know, he's partly responsible for this taxpayer's money. Are the optics good enough?
7: Right. Firstly, we are not funding the gangs.
0: No, I'm not saying that. Secondly,
7: the the Harry Tam interviews that have played over the last week or so um, uh, don't do a couple of things, and I think the media has bought into that. Harry Tam hasn't talked about the harm that's caused to women and children who try to uh, escape the gangs. Mm. Harry Tam hasn't talked about the harm that meth causes to communities. I mean, I I don't buy uh, necessarily all the stuff that Harry Tam's uh, and, okay. and the like, tell you sure. and, and my experience in terms of my work in family violence, the gang life is hard. Um, the the uh, gang, gangs proactively um, recruit young people into them, and I don't for a second buy that. OK,
0: given all that... The optics of giving Harry Tam money, if you don't buy in all that, Can the I optics of giving Harry Tam money. I've been saying are this all
7: week that we are funding a program that has been shown to work, we are not yep. funding the gangs. I don't know how much clearer I can be. No, I,
0: and, and I'm not saying that you're funding the gangs, but Harry Tam is obviously affiliated with it. And so the Police Association... You can, this is where organised crime officers are saying, hang on a sec, I took $2 million off the mongrel mob in the notorious chapter, and then $2.75 million gets sort of circled back somehow to some of the mongrel mob in, in, a, in this method." programme. A,
7: the lead agency on this is the Ministry of Health. So it's, I've their, so it's their problem, is it? That the Ministry of Health is the lead agency on this, dealing with a pro- doing a program that actually has been proven to work. Okay. We're not funding the gangs; we're funding the program.
0: Well, let's let's move on to the routine arming of police. I mean, you've said you won't ever support that, and that's on the principle that police operate by consent in the community. Is Absolutely. that okay? The surveys sort of seem to show that the community. Is in favour of it I mean and again it's the Police Association have done the survey so we take that into account but it shows 61% of public in favour of arming police so the community may give their consent
7: I don't support uh, general arming of the police the Prime Minister doesn't Stuart Nash didn't the Commissioner doesn't neither did the previous Commissioner mm. what it does is it fundamentally changes the relationship we have with the police we have a trust uh, relationship with police—they're approachable, and we don't fear them. And I believe that we will have, um, irrever- you know, irreversibly uh, change that relationship. Now, I'm talking with frontline police all the time. Um, this recent. And what are they saying it,
0: to you? Because the, they the, the police association. Look, is. and I'm
7: also ringing um, officers um, who are harmed. Uh, yep. You know, who are out there, and I, I call them and I talk to them about about the issues, um, and they say a couple of things to me. They, you know, they say. Uh, if I was armed, would the outcome be different? Um, It may or may not have been. But what they're saying very clearly to me is that they want to be confident when they go into a situation. Now, being confident when they go into a situation means that they need to be trained properly. They need to have the resources to do the work um, and I'm really clear that I want to support that um, okay. as, as much as I can. Right. Now I was recently at um, the memorial for Constable Matt Hunt yep. and I want to mihi to Diane and Ellie and to all of the wider police whānau who have been impacted by that and I give my absolute commitment that that I will support whatever um, uh, needs to happen to make them as safe as possible. Okay, I've
0: got a question for you then. I mean, should you be giving your opinion given that it's really an operational matter? I mean, the decision to generally arm police really rests with the Commissioner, doesn't it? It
7: absolutely does.
0: OK, so are you trying to influence the Commissioner? The
7: Commissioner doesn't support general arming of police. And let's face it, as a police service that is unarmed... We have access to uh, firearms when we need it. Um, We've got access to specialist training. We've got access to um, the um, AOS as well. And the lockboxes in the car and everything But there's more that can be done, and that's what um, I'm uh, talking to the Commissioner about now. What more we can do to support our our front line, to be confident when they go out. But it
0: won't go as far as general arming. No. Uh,
7: one of the things that the Commissioner put in place um, after Matthew Hunt's tragic loss was the Frontline Improvement Safety Programme. Now, feedback that's coming to me from mm. people who are going through that programme is saying, you know, they're saying what it has done is given them Far more, more confidence. confidence. It's a scenario-based training, okay. and that's what I'm hearing when I'm speaking with officers who have been hurt. Right. What they're saying is that they so would like the confidence to, to confidence. Uh, yeah, to, okay. to deal with um, situations. Let's, that,
0: okay, let's move on to a couple more issues to cover quickly. Um, gang numbers: a national gang list has hit 8,000. April. Do you know what it is now?
7: Uh, I think we released the numbers uh, recently to uh, in an OIA. I think it's gone up a yep. bit. But you know, uh, okay, for me, so re- for, for me, um, tell any, me now, first of all, tell me what I those numbers are. I think it's gone are. up about sixty.
0: Up about like. sixty. So probably eight thousand sixty. It's an
7: Intel um, uh, tool. It's not. Um, it's not a. Uh, um, it's not something that's useful in terms of uh, really establishing the gang picture. But what I do want to say is that any any number is too high. And the work right. that the police are doing... So still, and is, it's
0: going higher on your watch, and Labor's watch, since you come to...
7: Um, it's also, um, and this is something the commissioner will tell you too, it's also very hard to get off the list. If you may not be active, you mm. may have...
0: But it's the best we've got at the moment. It's it? the
7: only uh, intel tool we have, right. and it's used by the police for that. And it's but, going up. But... Uh, but I want to say it's not um, useful to quote a number when there is so much activity that's happening. The police are doing a great job at disrupting that. I mean, Operation Tōwhiru, for example, sure. is taking guns out of, the, out of circulation. Yep. It's taking drugs out of circulation. Yep. So when
0: were we going to see <clears throat> Operation Tōwhiru and other such operations bring it down?
7: Uh, when I say that it's very difficult to have a list uh, that's um, where you have, you can get on the list very easily, but it's very difficult to get out.
0: Okay. All right. Get off. Let's move on to another area of concern for police. That's vaccination. So at the beginning of the vaccination process, police weren't prioritised. They're like like. Ambulance officers and firefighters and health workers—they were first responders in Group Two, but police were not, unless I was particularly on the border. Do you know why not?
7: I—what I can tell you about the vaccinations is that um, our conver- conversations with health is that vaccines will be going to MedPro to roll out for for general uh, police. Wouldn't the ones that then? MIQ and the ones that are frontline had been. Yeah, yeah, vaccinated. and that's the border workers, but the general the police force
0: were first. They worked all the way through COVID. OK, the first responders, and they didn't get vaccinated yeah. early like the other if first responders. They
7: are... they going to be vaccinated They're getting that now, immin- but is imminently. that acceptable?
0: I mean, I didn't realise that. Uh,
7: well, we made sure that those who are working on our border, those are most at risk of getting COVID, uh, were vaccinated.
0: I guess if you take that into account and sort of the pay freeze, the sort of, you know, the violence that's going on, is this... Impacting your ability to deliver on your promise of 1,800 extra police? No, it is not.
7: Well, and in fact, we are we are on target to deliver that. Are Can you? I say, um, Simon, that we get criticised for this? We have the biggest police service ever. Fourteen thousand people work in police and we are on target to meet our eighteen hundred growth by twenty twenty three. Now criticism has come to us about about being delayed in that. When when I, I want to say to you Simon, it's the biggest police service Ever.
0: Sure, I understand that, but it looks like the numbers have stagnated around 1,200 new extra, extra officers. I mean, I just wonder there's whether... There's
7: no stagnation There's no it. stagnation, no, OK. We've got two um, wings going through uh, training at the moment.
0: All right. I Just generally, the frontline officers that we've been talking to, there's a couple of quotes here. Uh, one of them is... Uh, it was in the intro. We feel she's anti-police, anti-response teams, armed response teams, um, and you need to get on the TV and social media and show you back the police. Others say... Uh, I hate to say it, but we need the right to strike. It's clear the Government Commissioner aren't reading the room. Yeah. OK, how do you respond to those kinds of messages I'm, that we get I'm, from frontline I'm
7: police? In, I'm with police a lot. In fact, um, you know, I've been, during this recess, um, I go out on regional visits and I talk to frontline police. Mm, okay. I talk to them um, one-on-one, I talk to them in groups. and so, they, are to, they They are telling me um, a whole lot of... Um, things that, you know, I really value. They're talking about uh, their concerns for their safety and, and wanting to feel confident. And there are things that we can do about that.
0: Okay. so you've got a national platform right now. I mean, maybe yeah. you could give yeah. a message to the police right now... Yeah. ..and tell them. What would your message be?
7: My message would be that uh, recently, when I was at the memorial for Matt Hunt, the koumatawa challenged me and he said, you are now their fire, you must look after them. And that's my absolute commitment, that I will look after the police, because it is my job to do so.
0: Kia ora. Porter Porta Williams, Minister for Police. Thank, Thank you very you. much Thanks, for your time Simon. this morning. All right, up next, analysis from our political panel, Anna Firefield, Bridget Morton and Dr Lara Greaves, and digital editor Finn Hogan on the power of a political struggle for our hearts and minds online. With the political debate, of course, increasingly digital, I checked in this week with digital editor Finn Hogan to see who's up, who's down, and who's splashing the cash across social media, starting with the question, who's on top online?
6: Well, both major opposition parties are doing quite a push into social media in the last couple of weeks. ACT, with their slew of policy proposals and a regional tour, National with their demand-to-the-debate campaign. And between the two, it's actually National who are pulling ahead in pretty much every metric we can measure on Facebook, whether it be follower growth or video views. All right, but last time
0: we talked, ACT was well ahead, so what's changed?
6: Well, I think it kind of comes down to a simple communications truism, which is keep it simple where you can, particularly on social media. Because ACT is pushing people towards quite dense issues of policy, but that's inherently quite a hard sell on social media. When you compare that to National, they've got a very inherently emotive, catchy slogan, demand the debate, and I think that's what's driving the success.
0: Yeah, but uh, how much of that growth is organic and how much are they actually paying for
6: Yeah, well, this is quite interesting. If we actually break down the numbers here, ACT are spending an amount of money that you'd expect to see in an election year. They're spending tens of thousands of dollars pushing this campaign on Facebook. Now, if we contrast that to National, they're spending a comparatively piddly couple of grand, but they're getting more cut through. They're getting more bang for that lesser money. And what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that their more pointed style, at least in this campaign, is showing dividends.
0: Right, I reckon you mean National's Ute ad, which was... A bit crass, wasn't it?
6: Well, yes, you picked up on my subtle messaging there, Si. Yes, the ute tax edge showing the ute tax euphemistically biting Kiwis in the bum. Look, it was very crass, as you say, but... For those people that that ad is targeted at, it's going to work perfectly. They'll find it funny. They'll find it irreverent. And the people who hate it will probably comment on it. They'll probably share it. And that will just increase National's reach for free. As I always say, Simon, a hate click is still a click. Facebook should just have that as their slogan at this point.
0: <laughs> but you mentioned targeting. Is there any way to see who's actually watching these?
6: Yeah, that's interesting. So I can't see, it's not publicly available, who exactly National are targeting. But I can basically infer it from looking at where the ad is playing. And these ads are playing primarily in the regions. Auckland barely even registers. And that kind of goes to show that National's responding to a criticism that's been levied over them in recent weeks, that they're kind of leaning away from their grassroots rural base with some of their rhetoric. So this kind of shows that they're trying to correct for that.
0: Right, but compared to Labour, is it effective?
6: Well, I mean, yeah, that is the big question, isn't it? And I would say, again, there's only so much we can infer from Facebook numbers. But for the first time in my memory, Labour's actually been losing followers from their main page since about the start of May. And that's quite unusual for a page that's historically been so popular on social media and a page that's got that many followers. So I think what you could say from this is that National is gaining traction, at least online, and support for Labour is waning.
0: Alright, so let's uh, talk about individual MPs. Who are our current
6: top performers? Last time we spoke, it was Erica Stanford. Now it's Simeon Brown. He is streets ahead of everyone else except Jacinda Ardern, They're doing very well. All right, and what's Simeon Brown's secret? Yes, okay, well, it's gangs and guns, Simon, as we have already discussed on the programme today. Just like Erica did with immigration, Simeon's chosen one specific, one divisive, one very emotive issue, and he's pumping out a huge amount of content about it. He's posting about four times as much on average as the Prime Minister, who is already very online. And as we know, this is the exact kind of approach that the algorithm rewards, and crucially, it rewards you without you having to spend a cent.
0: Hmm. All right, and before we go, uh, any
6: honourable mentions? I'm so glad you are, Simon. Can I just give a quick shout-out to Chris Bishop, who is always in the top five in terms of Facebook engagement. He's very good at social media. But this post he made about KFC just went hilariously viral. Like, it got so much more engagement than other major world events that you would expect to completely wipe the floor with it. Like, the Capitol riots. Like, the Prime Minister getting vaccinated. KFC clambered over all of them. And look, KFC's not paying me to say this. (laughs) I just think it's almost comforting that in a time where we can't agree on anything politically, at least as a country, we came together about chicken. It was just One little ray of light in the dark forest of Facebook.
0: KFC free digital editor, Finn Hogan. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Simon. All right, time now for our political panel. Joining me, Dr. Lara Greaves from Auckland University Politics, political commentator and lawyer, Bridget Morton, and Anna Firefield, who is editor of the Dominion Post via the Washington Post. Thank you for your time this morning. Let's talk shutting the bubble. Uh, Lara, eight weeks with Australia shutting it. is that the right response?
9: I think the certainty there is really good, like shutting it for eight weeks so people know to plan and, and know how to figure out what, what they're doing in the next couple of months. I think that ultimately what all of the modelling is showing is that the Delta variant, if it gets in here, we're screwed. Yeah. Right? That's pretty universal. And so I can see weighing the pros and cons, and I definitely agree with Professor Gorman that it is a political decision. We know that actually pandemics are all yeah. about the social science behaviours and all those sorts of things and people's attitudes. But if the Delta variant gets in, we are screwed, and so that is definitely the right decision. <laughs> (laughs) He's
0: also talking about taking the politics out of public health, Bridget, but I don't see how you can do that really, can you?
4: No, I don't think you can. I think Lara's absolutely right that there's a social licence that has to come into this and so people have to be on board with what you're announcing, otherwise they're just not going to follow it. And you've seen across the world of people just, you know, disengaging with what the politicians are telling them and just doing what they think is necessary. Mm. I think the eight weeks is also, you know, conveniently quite linked to this next round of Pfizer vaccines that are coming to the country. The government knows that there's a big weakness at the moment that we really vulnerable, mm-hmm. they're going to hope to get really as many people through as possible in that eight weeks, that if we do reopen the borders, that we're a much less vulnerable person. So if
0: they're that strategic about it, uh, Anna, um, there's no way that Jacinda Ardern's going to be apologising for the vaccine rollout like Scott Morrison did then. I <laughs> can't
5: remember the last time Jacinda Ardern apologised for anything. <laughs> I think she's not known for admitting... We she talked it up and said, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the fact that Scott Morrison did apologise mm. is a signal of how badly they have um, screwed things up mm. in Australia and not reacted quickly enough for this. So there's a lot of shambolic uh, things happening in New Zealand as well in terms of MIQ spots and yep. vaccine rollout. So I think there should be some recognition of that.
0: So further down the track, when we do get vaccinated, what is what is what are your thoughts about the idea that if you are vaccinated, you have more freedom and if you aren't vaccinated, you can't travel? What do you think, Laura?
9: I have a few issues with that. Yep. I think I, I think that one of the real successful things about our COVID response has been more sort of that carrot and the stick thing. We've more had carrots. We've all more had that social cohesion the team of 5 million I think that when you create division Mm. that creates an issue where you do need that higher policing and people are less likely to just listen out of the goodness of their hearts and so I would really
4: worry about that division there.
0: Okay Bridget can you see that um, ever happening?
4: I do see it for an extent that there is a certain group of people that feel at the moment that they don't need to get the vaccine and therefore it's not risky enough. But if if there is a carrot, if there is an incentive that if I can't travel, that is a restriction, I think we're going to see more people vaccinated.
0: All right. Can we move on to uh, Police Minister Porter-Williams? So uh, She was on the programme this morning. Um, She has got a really tricky road at the moment, hasn't she, Anna, between we don't like the gangs, we don't like the meth addiction, we don't like the the, domestic abuse and all those kinds of things, but... the the optics of Harry Tam are working against that.
5: Yeah, and that video you just played is really astonishing, isn't it? That shows that. So I'm kind of surprised that the government didn't get out ahead of this at the start and announce this or explain it on their own terms. They've been really on the back foot throughout this. Mm. But the messaging that is coming through now is that these kind of programs do seem to work. Uh, this is a big issue in the community and that we have to be, at, like, it's called hard to reach, to be able to reach
4: those hard to reach But
0: it's also a really hard sell. It is
4: that? a hard sell and I think they have not done a great job on that. What
0: do you think, Bridget?
4: Well, I think I think the issue you're always going to have is that you have got a group of people that have literally profited from meth addiction. They mm. are the ones that are peddling it and now we're paying them to solve it. You've got to say, common sense-wise, that there's something wrong with that circle of money. I think, you know, if they were running a program in their own communities off the money that they have made of the meth addiction to solve this, supporting it, taxpayers' money? Absolutely not.
0: But is it that simple really, Lara? I mean, don't we just have to say, okay, we have to find anything to deal with the meth addiction and yeah. meth, meth crisis? Is, is that is that a reasonable response? It's a
9: huge issue and I think the problem was with, and like I can see the point of having a cannabis referendum, but that shifted that drug policy talk to cannabis in, in our national psyche and we need to be thinking more about pay. We mm. need to figure out how to solve this problem and actually like okay, so I see sort of Simeon Brown now kind of owning the issue of gangs and yeah. owning on the right kind of that Classic populist crime and punishment and, rhetoric, and, and the
0: minister just revealed that yep. there's another what 80 in the latest two. Yeah,
9: and years. so he's owning that issue, and he's being actually quite, I'd say, effective opposition in that space, and that's in keeping with his brand, right? Yeah. But ultimately, who has a plan to solve P? Because that's the thing that's hurting more communities, hurting more regional communities, more Māori communities. Who has a plan? Yeah, but Where should is we? Should,
0: should, from the government's point of view, should they be tying themselves up with, you know? Proven mobsters. When there may be other programs but which are just communities
9: successful. need to solve their own problems, right? So yeah. it's like for us, like you know, to rock into one of those communities and be like, okay, I'm going to interact with mongrel mob members and solve their pee problems. Like that's not me and us mm. and, and policy people doing that is not the right approach. So a trust. It's
0: all about trust. Yeah. There. Okay, I'm going to move on to trust of the police force in their police minister, Bridget. Do you think she has the trust of police? It
4: is difficult to see that at the moment. And I think, you know, there's just the multiple layers of, you know, the pay negotiations, the increase in violence, um, the training. I think the numbers coming on, you know, while she says it's on track, it is delayed and it is not, you know, what they promised it would be. So you can see why police are feeling really vulnerable in the community Mm. and they're not seeing that strong, you know, rhetoric coming from their minister they're fully backed.
0: All right. Uh, Would you agree with that, Anna? Would you you agree that, you know, there seems to be a sort of... uh, You've got the pay freeze, you've got pay negotiations, negotiations breaking down, you've got the issue of arming, you got the surveys, all those kinds of things. Is there a disconnect between the minister and who she represents?
5: Well, I mean, according to some of those people, yes. But I mean, looking at this as someone who's relatively recently returned to New yep. Zealand, I think it's really healthy that we're able to talk about this and to have the debate about this and the, to take the minister on in this way and to raise these issues. That this is hopefully how um, these kinds of things get solved.
0: Okay, all right. So you mentioned that you recently returned. Let's let's talk overseas issues. Uh, big this week. Uh, China accused of uh, being a cyber hacker by all the the big allies around the world. And are you with the Washington Post. Beijing Bureau for Chief for how long? A couple of years. A couple of yeah. years. What are your thoughts on this? It seems extraordinary.
5: Yeah, this week I think has really shown the fact that it's not just, the Chinese threat is not just to Uyghur Muslims living in northwestern China and things yeah. that they are, and that we are not immune to this here in New Zealand, that they have been actively uh, trying to hack into our computer systems and to do damage here in New Zealand. So we should absolutely be standing up to China and standing up for our values, um, you know, defending ourselves in this situation is,
0: is that easy to say though, when they're our largest trading partner.
5: Yeah, it, it, no, of course there is that <laughs> factor there, but the fact that we joined together, not just with the Five Eyes, which is an extremely kind of politicised uh, alliance now, but with the EU and with Japan and, and part of being part of this broader coalition, I think, mm-hmm. is exactly the right way we should be doing this to show that this is a, a concerted international response.
0: Bridget, do you think we should be concerned about trade repercussions? for Australia, for Australia, for New Zealand and Australia and all the rest of them, but just New Zealand.
4: Yeah, no, no, I think absolutely you can see what's happened in Australia, yeah. that there is absolutely trade replications for this. But, you know, what Anna is saying is, you know, we have moved from, you know, standing up for our values for a group of people on the other side of the world is quite different to us actually being, you know, um, attacked on at our shores here and actually mm. having issues here. So I think that changes the balance between trade and that foreign relationship a bit more.
0: Yeah, but um, you you can't just say, oh, if I'm a trader and I'm exporting to China, Lara, I can't just go, oh, well I need to go export somewhere else, you've got to develop those markets so you can't just pivot.
9: Can you? Yeah, I think that long term policy approach is needed and like again, hopefully, hopefully that Labour will move in that direction. I think what really, in terms of the voters and political risk, what represents a political risk and people don't the average voter does not get into the nitty-gritty of mm. foreign policy, hard enough to get postgrad students to get into that. But ultimately, if something does hit the voters' pockets in this in various sanctions and repercussions of oh, our sort of China policy, I think that's where you'll see the real issue come through in the voters.
0: Okay, all right. Well we're gonna wrap it up there. Thank you very much for your time. Lara, Bridget and Anna. If I can I new uh, Newland MP Deborah Russell will share her backstory with us, plus Five hot minutes with ex-firearms queen Nicole McKee. my Ano to backstory, where we head into the private lives of our MPs to find out what shaped and motivates them. Labor's Deborah Russell is a tax policy specialist with three degrees, including a PhD in philosophy. But there's another side to her. She's also a native of the Republic of Whangamomona and the daughter of a shepherd.
10: I've always baked. People come to my house, I like to feed them. <laughs> it's really straightforward. It's creative, Go. You know? These muffins I'm making, um, I made them for my girls all through school. The girls said that they used to trade them around the playground, that quarter of a muffin was worth a small packet of chips. <laughs> they all started school in Wellington, spent some time in Palmerston North, spent some time in Adelaide. Mostly we're moving because my husband Malcolm was shifting to get um, academic positions. So, you know, we, we moved to Adelaide because that was where he got his chair. But Auckland's great, isn't it? It's <laughs> There's just so much on. Um, and I love living out here in Teterangi, you know, bush, trees, sea. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. Um, you know, the traffic is like the weather. You've just got to work with it. And I mostly just stay out in West Auckland. I try very hard not to go into town, <laughs> if, if at all possible. So I'm a native of the Republic of Uh Dad was a shepherd and mum was um, had been teaching in the local school just as an uncertified teacher. But it's just fun going into the pub. All the rugby club photos are on the walls and my cousins and my uncles and my dad are all through those photos. Yeah. So this is my plunkett book, Deborah Russell's baby record book, Eats Well. <laughs> That's kind of cool still having that. Um, this is my school report from St Joseph's in New Plymouth. Apparently I speak clearly and competently. This is me aged 10, aged 10 I can tell from the date, Um, as Pippi Longstockings in the local speech and drama competitions. (laughs) It's one of the problems in our household, I've got three degrees but my husband's got four. (laughs) It's just outrageous. I think looking at what I'm wearing, that was around about the time um, Malcolm and I got married. You know, I'm married, I've got three kids, our Wellington place has got a white picket fence, um, so lots of things that look really traditional but I'm a feminist. These are our twins, Sophia and Bridget. (laughs) Sophia and Bridget turned 20 today, so I'm out of teenagers. (laughs) It feels very odd. They're great kids, they really are. They're all pretty independent-minded. They've been um, lobbying me on all sorts of issues, saying, Mum, why didn't you fix this? I was like, OK, dear. They're politicians' kids, so they're a lot more aware of the formal power structures in this country than many young people are. I was always interested in politics, um, we'd been living in Australia and I'd sort of been thinking I'd quite like to get involved, but man, have you seen Australian politics? <laughs> so, uh, But then we moved back home to New Zealand, it started 2011 uh, and I joined the Labour Party after the 2011 election. It's a weird place, it really is, it's such a, uh, it's, it's like a boarding school or something like that, it's so institutionalised. Um, uh, but it's exciting as well, you know, uh, there are good days at work when you get something done. I like being part of a team too. We really do operate as a team in the Labour Party and we get things done together. Gosh, in terms of feminism around Parliament, um, obviously there's policy we push through which just comes through with a, a feminist lens on it. Some of the times it's just being out there so that people know that there are women in there who agree with them and who support them. Sometimes it's within Parliament I, I sort of think that's just some bloke talking for the sake of talking instead of actually making a point. Um, And I'm sure there are women who do that too, but I do notice it more from some of the men and I'm not going to name names. (laughs) (laughs) It's so sweet. We met at Otago University Debating Society and we started going out after we left university. We go walking a bit. There's some great walks around here, so that's really good too. But sometimes, you know, we get to the end of the week and I sort of get back here and go, oh, you're the chap I'm married to, because <laughs> it just gets so busy. It was only about six months after we were actually married to each other that we both realised that um, the other liked Star Trek as well, so this <laughs> is the, the big secret I kept from him before we got married. <laughs> and he from me too. So.
8: I don't see nearly as much for her as I'd like to, but you know, that's OK, because we've always thought we're in this together, and this is a period of time where I'm really supporting her career and delighted to do it. You know we've been lucky to grow together over 31 years and I think both of us when we married knew that there was some pretty deep connection there. And it
10: turned out to be Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
8: I just thought that this was a woman that I could
3: spend my life with.
10: The way I show people I love them is by looking after them. Through my doctoral work in political philosophy I became interested in how we make the world a better place, how we do that through institutions. And for me, that was what drove me into actually getting formally into politics instead of just commentating from the outside. In terms of how long I do it for, uh, we'll see, Um, but I'm 55 now, so I don't want to hang on in there until I'm 70. (laughs) I'd rather do hopefully um, a couple more terms and then um, clear the way for someone else.
0: Deborah Russell there, stay with us. We're back with the pitch after the break. Welcome back to The Pitch, where we give an MP exactly five minutes to sell us all on their ideas. This week it's Act who've released new policies targeting crime and gangs. Nicole McKee is a four-time New Zealand shooting champion and acts justice spokesperson. She sat down with Connor Whitten and began by asking, why the focus on gangs?
8: Well I think that we actually do have to have a strong focus on gangs and when we've gone out to the community and asked them questions they've effectively said they don't like the soft on crime approach and they want to see some harsher penalties and consequences for how the gangs behave.
3: All right. let's talk about those penalties. Gang injunction orders, who would be affected and what would they do?
8: So the gang injunction orders would only be eligible for those on the national gangs list so that's 8,006 members currently. And it would need to be applied by the courts. So first of all, the police have to put a case together, take it to a judge. A judge then needs to agree that there is a case to answer and then decides what injunctions to put on those gang members.
3: So the National Gang List includes people who are gang associates. Many of them haven't ever been convicted of a crime. Is it fair to put injunctions on innocent people?
8: So the injunctions will be placed only on those that police make a case for placing those injunctions on. So if they're on the gang list and they're actually behaving, there should be no need to put an injunction order on them. And when we talk about those penalties... Of those 8,006 members they on average hold 36 offences or 36 convictions each. I mean that's huge. So we're talking about going after the worst of the bad in our society.
3: So what would you be able to stop them from doing with these?
8: Well overseas they've shown that they've been able to place injunction orders to stop a person from associating with other gang members, uh, from frequenting certain places of business especially where they think organised crime may be taking place there. In the Success rate has been quite high. In the UK, a study in 2017 showed 70% decrease in crime as a result of their gang injunction orders.
3: Even the British government acknowledges that a lot of gang members just pick up and go somewhere else. So aren't you just going to be shifting the problem around?
8: Well, the difference with New Zealand is that we are a small country. We're an island nation at the bottom of the earth. So if they want to go to another country, by all means they can go. But while they're here on our whenua, we're going to make sure our people are kept safe.
3: You also want electronic income management for people on a benefit. How would that work?
8: So that would work where we see those members that are on the National Gangs List that are receiving a benefit, and over 90% of them have received a benefit at some stage, going on electronic management. That way we can make sure that the money that they get from the taxpayers and their benefit is being spent in the right place, not on drugs, tobacco or alcohol.
3: Does it apply to everybody on the National Gang List? Yes. I want to read you a quote from the police commissioner. It says, it's very easy to get on the list. We see gang members wearing a patch. But it's very hard to get off the list because if you drift away from gangs, we have no way of knowing. So how would you know who's in a gang?
8: I find that hard to believe, especially when in the last 12 months the police have managed to take 430-odd people off that list.
3: But this is the boss of police saying they find it hard to take people off it. So you're going to end up capturing people who aren't even in a gang
8: then they need to show, and perhaps they can do it by hanging up their patches, that they're no longer in a gang.
3: Do you want Cashless welfare for all beneficiaries?
8: We believe that those that abuse the system, the beneficiary system, such as those that have intergenerational use of benefits, uh, those mothers on the DPB that continue to have children while on the benefit, that they need to be put under some sort of management in order to ensure that our children, our tamariki that are coming up, will be cared for properly.
3: 75% of gang members are Māori and critics of these policies say they're racist. What do you say to that?
8: I don't believe that. Well, you know, I do believe that there is a large amount of Māori in gangs, but there's also another side to it that we need to acknowledge, and that there's there's a large amount of Māori who are victims of the
3: gangs. There's a lot of debate this week about arming police officers. Should frontline police be armed?
8: I don't believe so. I don't think taking a gun to a gunfight is actually going to make the community safer. It would just be a matter of time before we see an innocent person being shot. I don't want that on the hands of of a police officer.
3: The National Party would like to bring back armed response teams. You wouldn't support that?
8: At this stage, we don't. The routine traffic stops that they did in certain areas was, in some views, discriminatory. So that's definitely a discussion that we'd like to have, but at this stage, we don't believe that they're needed.
3: The National Party has been struggling lately. Are you guys the default opposition now?
8: I think that we are an opposition party that is wanting to hold this government to account and we're doing a really good job of it. we focused on us and how we can grow and how we can bring good public policy to New Zealand. That's our goal. What the other opposition parties do is up to them, but we need to focus on New Zealand, good public policy, good laws and actually listening to the people.
0: Nicole McKee on the pitch there. And that's all from us for now. Thank you so much for watching. Naamihi Nui. And we will see you again next weekend. This program was made with the assistance of the New Zealand On Air Platinum Fund.